Guys, let me remind you what we're up to on Wednesday nights. We're studying uh, Acts chapter 15. But let me, let me tell you what it is that you're looking at. You're looking at the record of an event, an event that took place in the life of the church in her, in her formative years when, when a truth got attacked. Um, and as a result, a crisis arose and a, a major dispute in the life of the church. This big controversy erupts over whether or not circumcision is going to be required of converts. Paul saw that as a, an assault on a gospel of pure grace, unfettered grace. And so he uh, bows his neck, and as a result, this controversy erupts um, over this particular uh, piece of truth. Now, in our postmodern culture, um, that doesn't happen much, if at all, because um, the dominant mindset, the, the dominant ideology of our day is, is one of pluralism, and uh, thus truth doesn't even exist. So to, to think that they were going to have a fight over truth, I mean, that just doesn't happen anymore, because um, truth claims, that is, people who claim to have truth, are considered to be arrogant and, and um, narrow-minded and rigid, etc., all those names that are being, uh, were being called. But here, Paul saw this as a truth that must be defended and, of course, precipitates this controversy. Now, um, I, I guess in our day, no doubt, some Irenic type would, um, in our midst, be pleading for unity. You know, um, uh, uh, don't, rustle any, don't ruffle any feathers. Um, we all need to be on the same page. Uh, um, we all need to be one. Uh, no matter what gets forfeited, we all need to be one. We all need to be unified. And guys, please don't hear me uh, undercutting unity. Unity is a wonderful thing. Um, but unity cannot be had at the price of truth. And that's what I think, and, you know, in my Presbyterian world, you know, I'm an old um, Presbyterian, and what, one of the things that, that we used to do with people who were joining a Presbyterian church that I used to pastor in is that we, the, the, uh, the person joining uh, vows to uphold the peace and the purity of the church. Well, um, there's a lot of people who are insistent that the, that the peace of the church be upheld, even at the expense of her purity. Now, again, uh, our, our 21st century mindset is, is uh, also reluctant to make claims of truth. That wasn't so, so true, of course, in the first century, and that's what you find here, a, a truth that has caused a great controversy. Now, let me also remind you of the... By the way, I mentioned that um, this book that I had in my library, and I don't think you believe me, Great Church Fights. Um, in fact, uh, years ago, I did a... Um, I, took, I took a stack of Chuck Swindoll books, and I was just looking at the footnotes in the back. And it was interesting to note that perhaps the book that Chuck Swindoll quoted the most in those books was this one. Frequent uh, allusions 
to this book. It's, a, it's an interesting little treatment. I mean, it's nothing profound, but, uh, you know, you hear people saying, oh, I wish we could go back to the old apostolic church days. Well, okay, I'd, I, that'd be good, but they fought back there. I just want you to know that. I mean, there were some big issues, and here's one of them. Well, let me remind you of the players. What you have here is a group of men called Judaizers. Um, in, the, in the record that's given us in Galatians 2, they're called men from James. That is, uh, representing James, which was probably not true. Or James would have probably croaked if he thought they were... Rep- but they, they, they've taken on the name Judaizers, and they were, those were the ones who were insisting that people be circumcised, that converts be circumcised, and that they keep the law of Moses, as you find mentioned in verse 5. Then, of course, the, op- the opponent of the Judaizers is Paul and Barnabas and Titus. Titus, we're told in Galatians 2.1, is with Paul and Barnabas. But um, what you're going to see, I, I, I'm thinking we're going to try to cover verses 6 through 12 tonight. But what you're going to find in verses 7 through 11 is a speech made by Peter. So you have the Judaizers, and you have Paul and his little entourage, and then Peter becomes a spokesman for the Apostle Paul, or for the Apostle Paul's camp. Now, guys, over in the record that is given to us in Galatians 2, do you remember, do you remember that Peter was one who had caved in to pressure too? you remember that? Uh, and he and Paul got in an argument. So apparently, um, Peter's uh, waffling on the issues was corrected by a confrontation that he had with Paul. But not only Paul, uh, not, excuse me, not only Peter waffled, but so did Barnabas. So everybody seems to be caving into the pressure of the Judaizers saying, well, we've got to insist on the new converts being circumcised. Even Peter and even Barnabas uh, buckled underneath the pressure of the, this Judaizing camp. Now, um, something that I thought was interesting is to think that Peter just so recently could have been on one side of the fence And now you find him in verses 7 through 11 speaking against the very thing of which he was guilty only, let's just say, days or weeks earlier. Is that possible? Is it possible for us to be so duplicitous that one day we could be guilty of a thing and, you know, the next week be damning that thing? I want to read you a little story. Actually, it's it's a very tragic story, and uh, I'm going to ask you a question. And uh, after I read you this little story, but be very careful before you answer. A few years ago, a middle-aged man stood up on stood up as the Sunday morning worship service was coming to a close in a small church in the Pacific Northwest. This man, whom I have known all my life, was devoted to the church. He raised his family in it taught Sunday school, served as a deacon, fixed coffee for the fellowship hour, and cleaned up afterward. As he stood there that Sunday, he began to weep. Between sobs, he told the congregation, which had known him since he was a teenager, that he had sexually abused his children. 
It began when they were very young, and now they were almost all grown. When his wife found out, he moved. She moved. When, when his wife found out, he moved out of the house and got into counseling. He was not sure what was going to happen. This man, a nice person to all who knew him, had to confess to his friends that he was a child molester. All those years, the man kept going to church, and all those years, he kept violating his own children. He was a wave driven on the sea. Why? What did he think when he heard sermons, sang hymns, and taught Sunday school? What did he think when he looked into the eyes of his children? Here's my question for you, ladies and gentlemen. Be very careful before you answer could that man be a Christian? Be very careful. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if you say no, I think you're being a bit dishonest with yourself. And I furthermore think that grace is not something that you yet fully understand. Let me read you the next couple of sentences. The capacity of the human for duplicity is staggering. Ain't that the truth? The, capa- the capacity for the human being to be duplicitous is staggering. That's, that's what I'm saying is what Peter was doing. Here's a man who's, you know, he, he's in one particular um, uh, group, and they say, well, you know, what we think is that you really ought to uh, ask all the converts to be circumcised. Said, okay, okay, well, it'll be fine. And as a result, the whole truth of the gospel is at stake. Peter, a Paul comes to town, jacks his jaw, and, you know, a couple of days later, he's speaking against the very thing that he did. We would never do anything like that, would we? We would never be guilty of such duplicity, now would we? It usually takes different, much less dramatic forms than it did for this man, but the duplicity is there nonetheless. Duplicity can be aimed at other people. But it can even be aimed at ourselves. Human beings have a remarkable capacity for self-deception. Ain't that the truth? A remarkable capacity for self-deception. We can fool ourselves. Well, Peter is, a, is a, of course, a hero in, in the New Testament. But you see this man who is a hero acting with such a divided heart. That's my point, ladies and gentlemen. And and I when I when I asked the, when I read that, and I and I wanted to and I wanted to say, can he be a child of God and do that? There's only one answer. I don't like the answer particularly, but there's only one answer to that question. And the answer is yes. Of course he can. Because the capacity for duplicity and self deception on the part of the people of God is staggering. That's what sin did to us, ladies and gentlemen. The great cosmic car wreck has left us wounded and bruised and maimed. And we bring all that into the kingdom. And then you find this man who has such exposure, spent three years traipsing around the countryside with Jesus, you know, and saw all this business. But, you know, once a little pressure from his friends is applied, he wilts. Man. In, uh, isn't that just disgusting? 
I'm glad we're not like that. But anyway, um, let me read you these. Let me read you the speech of Peter, and then we might get to the second speech. But now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose and said to them, men and brethren. You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Let me read verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Now what you have, ladies and gentlemen, those six verses, seven verses, is the record of two addresses that are made to this uh, church council. By the way, I would like to point out in verse 12, then all the multitude. If you get the impression from verse 6 that this is just a gathering of apostles and elders, that um, has to be modified by what you find in verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent. My point is, indeed, the most important people there are the apostles and the elders, but there is a large gathering of people. Ever been one of those? Ever been one of those large gatherings of church folk? And there's all this debate and dispute that's going on over a particular issue. You ever been to one of those? I, I go to one every year. And uh, it's inter- sometimes the debate is, is just so in- intriguing. Somehow, sometimes it's boring. But sometimes when the issues are, are big, it's so intriguing to watch the give and the take and the debate. And, the, you know, and then and, and on, on many occasions, you know, I never, well, on many occasions I don't listen to the debate. And then finally, somebody stands up that I respect. And he speaks. And I, I figure out how to vote just because he said that. Because he is, uh, he is such a distinctive leader and somebody that I trust so. Well, the point is, after Peter gets through with his little, this, his little sermonette here, we're told in verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent. What he had done with what he had said, and by the way, I don't think you get everything that he said in those five verses, but, but because of what he said, he has rendered, he has put a stop to all the debate. All the dialogue, all the disputation, all the stuff that's going on there, it's now over because Peter has spoken. Now, notice what it is that Peter said that brought about such a silence. First of all, um, you'll, you'll notice in verse 7, when there had been much dispute. That is, I, I'm suggesting that that's the same kind of thing that I see every year in, in, um, in these, these church meetings I go to. And they're disputing over this cardinal issue, this fundamental principle of the, of the gospel. Will converts be asked to be circumcised? You know, guys, this, this is almost heroic, what we see here. And, and you can almost, you can tell a lot about folks based on what they argue about. What do you think are the great subjects and topics of dispute in the Christian church in the 21st century? I can tell you a few of them. We, we argue about music, and we argue about control, and we argue about money. But here, 
The dispute is over truth. You, you can tell the difference in the two churches, the church of the 21st century and the church, just because of what they're arguing over. There's this great dispute, and Peter rises and says to the men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to an event that took place ten years ago when he visited the home of Cornelius. Do you remember that? He has that vision in Acts 9 and um, or Acts 10. He has that vision while he's up on the rooftop and, and the court, some representatives of Cornelius show up at the door and they come to, he goes to Cornelius' house and the Holy Spirit falls on, on the group and they're converted. The first uh, uh, preaching of the gospel, at least privately, to Gentiles. It makes what he did it, that's recorded in Galatians 2 even worse to think that Peter was the one that was chosen he, he makes allusion to it. I was chosen so that the Gentiles could hear by my mouth this gospel of grace. And yet, a little pressure applied by the right people in the right circumstances, he goes running, he, he caves in. But uh, he makes allusion to that, um, he reminds them of what happens with, with Cornelius, um, and then states, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. For Peter and for the church, ladies and gentlemen, the, the final arbiter of the truth was the presence or absence of the Holy Spirit of God. When, when Peter gets ready to mark the validity and the credibility of the event at Cornelius' house, he refers to the Holy Spirit's having shown up. The ultimate mark, ladies and gentlemen, of one's validity is that there is something about his life that can only be explained by the presence and entrance of God, the Holy Spirit. You know, why do you believe some of this stuff that you believe? You know, we as Christians believe some pretty strange stuff. We believe that a man was dead and got buried and walked out of there alive. We believe that. We believe, we believe that, that this man was born of a virgin. We believe that. Why do you believe that when the world scoffs at it? Well, one of the reasons, ladies and gentlemen, is because the Holy Spirit has borne witness to your heart. Well, it's the, it's the Spirit's work to which he alludes and points to as the proof of the, um, the authenticity and the, the validity of what took place in Cornelius' house. Then he says, and made no distinction between them purifying their hearts by faith. So the, the work of the Holy Spirit results in the purifying of their hearts by faith. You know, guys, um, the, um, the, uh, the Pharisees were constantly concerned about people being pure. They were constantly concerned about people being defiled. Can, can I read you one other thing that I just thought was hilarious um, about purity? Because it talks about um, the Food and Drug Administration and their insistence on making things pure and foods that we eat, some federal guidelines of purity. Um, here's, here's the federal guidelines for purity in apple butter. Anybody like apple butter here? Well, here's the federal guidelines. You probably won't like it after this. If the mold count is 12% or more, if it averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams or more, if it averages five or more whole insects, not counting mites, aphids, or scale insects, uh, per 100 grams, the FDA will pull it off the shelves. Otherwise, 
it will go right onto your English muffin. <laughs> How about coffee beans? Anybody like coffee here? Again, purity. We're concerned about purity here. Coffee beans will get withdrawn from the market if an average of 10% or more are insect infested or if there is one live insect in each of two or more immediate containers. The FDA says people just don't like getting too many live insects with their coffee beans. One container is okay, uh, but with more than that, we draw the line. Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Mushrooms can't be sold if there is an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. Just want to make sure that... How about, I've never even heard of this. Fig paste? Does anybody eat fig paste in here? Oh my goodness, you must be from the north. If there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams of fig paste in each of two or more subsamples, the FDA ruthlessly tosses the whole batch. Apparently, other insect body parts are tolerable, but we don't want to waste, uh, we don't want to be staring too much at insect heads. Hot dogs. <laughs> this is what he writes. You don't even want to know about it. <laughs> but I mean, the FDA is concerned about purity, but they weren't the only ones. The Pharisees were constantly concerned about purity. They were always wondering how it is that we can, they can rid themselves of defilement. You remember this, this, the, the passage in, in Mark chapter 7 um, where they come to Jesus and they were very concerned, very, very concerned about Jesus' disciples because, you know, they ate with unclean hands and, and they're defiled. They're just defiled. They're impure. And Jesus just... I mean, first of all, note that the Pharisees realized at least that purity was a problem, that defilement was an issue. But what did they do to solve it? They put together this unbelievably intricate, detailed plan of how to maintain purity and escape defilement by rule after rule after rule. They knew that there was a problem. Their solution to the problem, however just wouldn't take care of the defilement. And you remember Jesus talks about, um, you know, it's out of the heart that these things come. But it's interesting to me that, that, that the Pharisees understood that defilement was a problem. But their solution just didn't work. But, but the text says, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. How does the heart get pure? By some code of Externally enforced rules? Is that how purity is, is, is achieved? Isn't that an interesting statement? Purity, purifying their hearts by faith. It is not by rule keeping. It is not by performance. It is by faith that the heart is made pure. Now, tell me, ladies and gentlemen, as you sit here tonight, half asleep, um, do you think your heart is pure? I love to use this little story. Um, it comes out of the revolution within. Have y'all read that book about? Um, and I think you've all heard the punchline by now. Uh, but it's the little story about. Imagine for a moment that God is in heaven and He's thinking about you. No, no, no. He's thinking, and all of a sudden, your name and face comes to His mind. All of a sudden, He's thinking, and you pop into His consciousness. Now tell me, 
What now is the expression on his face? He just thought of you, and what, uh, what expression has just appeared on his face? Is it? You know, disgust, discouragement, dismay, uh, disappointment. What expression has appeared on the face of God as he's thought about, you know? By the way, let me ask you that again. Does anybody in here think their heart is pure? He does! What does it say there, ladies and gentlemen? The heart is purified by faith. That is, the expression on the face of God is one of delight. In, in what He has wrought by His Spirit when faith is exercised. The heart has been purified. Now, we understand that there is a, there is a, there's, there's a purity that comes from um, just a right standing with God, and then the rest of our lives we're working on trying to have it fleshed out in our experiences. We understand that. But, ladies and gentlemen, in terms of God's understanding and appreciation of you, your heart has been purified by faith. It's all this grand and glorious work of the Holy Spirit that, by faith, transforms the heart and the standing of His people. Now, therefore... Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Guys, I love this word yoke because it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. I think you know. But in the, in the mind of Peter, to, to ask people to perform, to, uh, to achieve and obtain God's approval is nothing but testing God. To put a yoke on people, that's testing God. How, how, how horrible it must be for someone to think that the way that I am going to made, be made right with God is to obey the Ten Commandments. That must be a terrible burden. Because, how'd you do today? How'd you do with those things? Well, if you are under the impression that the way that you're going to be made right with God is some kind of... Um, performance or obedience, then, uh, you know, you're just under this yoke, this yoke. And by the way, the, the, the place that I was alluding to where it's used, this word is used again is in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But this one, oh my, it's really heavy. That foolish notion. And, you know, guys, um, I, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but the, the, the vast majority of America thinks that's, that's the way that they are going to be made right with God, is by some kind of obedience. And it's nothing but a yoke and a cruel one at that. And then, um, um, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. In the same manner as they. There again um, is, a, is a brief, succinct statement of the gospel. We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And of course, the same manner as they, that is, the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be saved in the same way. How are they going to be saved? They're going to be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's it. <laughs> Again, guys, um, maybe this message is, is old hat to you. 
but it was the thing that Paul thought he was willing to uh, really cause a ruckus about um, because it's so vitally important to understanding, and that is that it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that our hearts are made pure by faith in, the whole, by, by faith in Christ, and the Holy Spirit uh, accomplishes that in the great uh, process or the great act of regeneration. There's the gospel. I mean, that, there is um, a great presentation of some pretty heavy theological items in these five brief verses of Peter's uh, speech before this gathered group here. Okay, so th- that's what Peter says. I mean, that's uh, the end of Peter's little speech. He's, um, he's finished. Uh, he has stated very clearly that it's all by grace. He saves Gentiles and Jews by grace. There was only one that was saved by uh, obedience to the law, ladies and gentlemen. And that was, of course, the Savior himself. Um, but there is to be no double standard for Jews and Gentiles. There is to be no first and second class citizens in the church. That is the Jew and the, uh, the rest of them. No, we all, we'll all stand on the same footing. It is, it is grace versus yoke. It is grace versus law. Listen to this statement uh, found in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Um, this is a key text, of course, in this context because faith, I mean, circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing. It is faith working through love. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I, uh, you'll hear more on, Saturday, uh, on Sunday morning. But my, my dream for Gracie Van is that we would learn something about that last clause. Faith working through love. Um, uh, Christians uh, experiencing more uh, development of faith working through love. We'll, we'll talk about that more. And then uh, it's Barnabas and Paul's turn. I've already drawn your attention to the word multitude, which this is a big gathering. And they have been rendered silent as a result of listening to Peter. Um, that's what that's what truth will do to you, ladies and gentlemen. When you hear something that is that um, that resonates with with the with the soul, that's what it'll do. There's um, a story I love to tell about Martin Lloyd Jones. Martin Lloyd Jones, who is probably I, I'd have to say has uh, has had more impact on me in in just about every way I can imagine, certainly theologically, than any um, of the writers or the authors of the theologians that are out there. But uh, Lloyd-Jones would rarely, rarely let himself be taped. He didn't want to be taped. In fact, you will look probably in vain to find a taped sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones. His his opposition uh, was because he didn't think that the Holy Spirit could be captured on zinc oxide. So uh, he refused, on most instances, to be taped. I heard him preach one time on a tape. I've only heard one tape, and I don't even know where that came from. But I remember in there, he talked about uh, how he sensed whether the Holy Spirit was present in his proclamations. And, you know, um, in, a, in a lot of audiences, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of <laughs> uh, ruckus going on and a lot of encouragement for ruckus and a lot of amening and a lot of this and that and the other. And um, uh, there are those who would think that uh, that would be an encouragement to the preacher. Well, not to that preacher, not to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones' insistence was, 
when the Holy Spirit was ministering to the truth to God's people, they were rendered speechless. They were silent. Because they were grappling with what God was up to in their life. And that's what you find in this, in this verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listening and listened. They were so caught up by what was being said to them that the truth had shut their mouths. Um, I, I think he's got a point. Uh, that is Lloyd Jones. Anyway, um, listened, uh, kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Uh, they refer to God's credentials, these, these proofs of their uh, authenticity, and how many times that God had used them and, and granted them miraculous abilities. That's, uh, that's all they say. That's really the end of speech number two. Paul and Barnabas don't say much. Uh, it's interesting that Barnabas speaks first because um, um, Barnabas has really taken a back seat to Paul. But in this occasion, Barnabas speaks first, and what they allude to is how God has used them, and they give evidence to that by pointing to miracles that, that he has wrought. Because they're the ones who, in essence, were being used to see all these Gentiles one to Christ and, and filtered into the church. So it's hard to gainsay. It's hard to argue. It's hard to oppose when God has um, so demonstrably uh, used uh, them in this particular way and has, um, and has added the miraculous to it. So that's what they appeal to as their authority, and um, that's the end of their, their speech. So you've heard two speeches um, in this great dialogue and debate that's going on in the Christian church because they're trying to solve a problem that has arisen over truth. Guys, um, this truth that is before you is worth disputing. It's worth all of the arguments and all of the fights and all of the pain that we have to undergo because ultimately uh, the souls of men and women are at stake over these statements that are being argued out and pounded out in this church or in this, in this council meeting. Um, you want to argue about something? Argue about that. Argue about truth. Forget the, forget the music. Forget the control. Forget the money. Argue about what's true. And um, let's insist not only on the peace, but also the purity of the church. Let's quit. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will remind your people that truth is not only available, but vitally important to our existence. That truth is the, the thing on which we stand or fall. That if the foundations are be shaken, then none of us can stand. I pray, Father, that you will remind us that um, it is by grace, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the glorious work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration that we have had our hearts purified and we have been made brand new. And even then, O oh God, we continue to live with such inconsistencies and, and disloyalties and unfaithfulness. Forgive us, O oh God. We are a people who long to see those minimized, and to live more fruitfully, more faithfully, more um, with, with more sanction from above on what we've done. Oh God, might it be said of us 
that uh, you are doing great things through us, as it was said of Barnabas and Paul. Use us like that, Father. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and good night.